Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a day. We've got a fantastic Friday morning show for you, including the breaking news out of Ottawa at this hour. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a national distribution center for a COVID-19 vaccine. A former NATO commander will head this up. The Canadian military may be involved in the distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine. A lot of questions remain, though, but have a listen to this. This is Trudeau uh, just making the announcement. To assist in this process, we are standing up a national operations center, the Public Health Agency of Canada, with the support of the Canadian Armed Forces to coordinate logistics and distribution of vaccines. Major General Danny Fortin will be heading up the logistics and operations within this center. Okay, Trudeau making that announcement uh, just a short time ago. Lots of questions remain, though, about the distribution of a COVID-19, including when will Canadians actually get this vaccine? Let's talk about that now with my first guest on the show today, Aaron O'Toole. He is the leader of the Federal Conservative Party. He's the leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Thanks a lot for coming on again. Great to be back with you, Mike. Okay, you've really been going after Trudeau and the official opposition been putting the heat on the Prime Minister over a COVID-19 vaccine plan, rightly so in my opinion. What did you think of this uh, announcement from the Prime Minister this morning? This announcement should have been made in September. Uh, The very fact that this is just a coordinating logistics office where he's appointed a a lead, a general. I'm a veteran. I have a lot of faith in General Fortin. But this should have been months ago when they should have also negotiated the ability for Canada to make vaccines under license in Canada. They failed to do that. Uh, Now we're going to be seeing a lot of other countries not only get the vaccines, but be able to distribute it. We don't have the freezer capacity yet to to really work effectively with the Pfizer vaccine. That's why we should have been into the logistics planning of this in the summer. Um, We're we're playing catch up. This government always seems to be late, whether it's the border, rapid tests, now vaccines. Has, has that been confirmed that the contracts that the federal government has signed with these big pharmaceutical companies, it does not include the right for rights for Canada to manufacture these vaccines ourselves in our own country? Has that been confirmed now? Well, I'll leave it to your listeners. We've asked the question maybe 40 times yeah. and they won't answer it. So yeah. my assumption from that is no. What we do know is last spring, they put in a joint venture with China called the CanSino Project for vaccines. That fell apart in the summer. So what it looks like, Mike, is that Mr. Trudeau planned a joint venture with China. Uh, That's crazy in itself. Then that fell apart in the summer, and it was too late to get the ability to manufacture here in Canada with the major players like Moderna and Pfizer. They won't answer that, but we know that they've dropped the ball on this, and that's why Canada will be after uh, so many other countries. Okay, that's very troubling. Let me play a clip here for you from Trudeau this week. This is Justin Trudeau basically acknowledging that we don't have the facilities to make these vaccines here in our own country. Here's Trudeau. Canada no longer has any domestic production capacity for vaccines. Um, We uh, used to have it uh, decades ago. 
but um, we no longer have it. Uh, countries like the United States, Germany, and the UK uh, do have domestic pharmaceutical facilities, which is why um, they're obviously going to prioritize helping their citizens first. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, does it is it reasonable for countries that are producing these vaccines, they've got these big pharmaceutical companies that are head office in those countries, this is where they're making the products, it kind of makes sense that their own people would get the vaccine first, doesn't it? Well, the, com- the Prime Minister's comments there are rubbish. And that's not my quote. That's the quote of a University of Ottawa expert in this uh, who said it's rubbish. We actually have a National Research Council-funded facility in Montreal that can manufacture uh, for a vaccine. It was going to be the lead for Mr. Trudeau's own joint venture with China. And so he- he's misleading Canadians here. There are several... Uh, varieties of vaccines. Some are RNA, some are the traditional sort of egg-based, you know, influenza vaccine. But they planned to put all their eggs into one basket with China. And when that fell apart, it was too late to negotiate this with other companies or other, yeah, other companies. So he's not being honest with Canadians. I hate saying that, but it's true. And that's why they won't answer any questions about what they negotiated. They won't ask, answer questions yeah. about when major levels of doses will arrive in Canada. They won't a- answer whether we have the logistics chain for the cold weather or the cold storage, minus 70 for the Pfizer vaccine. They won't even acknowledge whether they've secured freezers. So uh, a lot of questions at a time other countries are almost receiving the vaccine. Yeah. Speaking to federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, like, yeah, if you uh, compare our situation with other countries, like the United Kingdom has got more than a, a thousand vaccination locations that they're already planning to open up. The United States has got a plan to get going in, in December. Uh, Germany has got a, a big vaccine program also set to kick off in December. So do we have any indication at all of when Canadians will get this vaccine? No, and we've been asking for months, not just for that date, Mike, but for a plan. As you said, the logistics, the locations for vaccinations. I asked this week about remote First Nation communities. Will we have a plan for them, for vulnerable seniors, the storage? The the military, I think, can do it. I'm proud of our, our military. But the federal government has been slow on the rapid test ordering. They're slow on the vaccine planning. We should have been doing the logistics planning in the summer for this. We're putting together that Mr. Trudeau's announcement today is months behind other countries. And so as opposition, we're pushing for better. We're holding them to account. And we've been proposing having a plan. We've offered to work with them on it for months. So it, it's frustrating, to say the least. OK, let me let me play this clip for you. This is Trudeau pushing back against one of your critics, Michelle Rempel, in, in question period the other day and, and she was grilling him on when Canadians can expect to get this vaccine, which I think is probably the top of mind question for most people in the country. And, and he pushes back here, kind of blaming a, pr- a previous conservative government. Here's Trudeau. The member opposite was asking what happened to domestic uh, manufacturing in Canada. The Conservative government happened to domestic manufacturing. In 2007, AstraZeneca and Bristol-Myers closed their Canadian manufacturing operations. In 2010, Johnson & Johnson and Merck's Montreal Research Centres closed their facilities. In 2011, Teva closed one of its Canadian manufacturing operations. In 2012, AstraZeneca, GSK and Sanofi announced closings and layoffs. That is what happened. Okay, apparently it's the Conservatives' fault. How do you respond? 
Well, I'm surprised he's not blaming Sir John A. Macdonald or Diefenbaker. You know, he, those are all ridiculous claims. In fact, Tiva is a generic manufacturer, so the Prime Minister doesn't even know the difference between the branded pharmaceutical industry and, and the generics. Canada has capacity in both. We have the, we're a G7 country that has world-class abilities in Toronto and in Montreal and strong uh, life science, bioscience in places like, like Vancouver and other parts of the country. So totally misleading. Layoffs uh, 14 years ago have nothing to do with Mr. Trudeau not negotiating the right to manufacture under license here. That's what they right, failed right. to do. Yeah. They put all their eggs into the China basket, which has been a problem with Mr. Trudeau since the beginning, an out-of-touch and naive approach to China. China bailed on the project in August, and we'd missed out on deals with the other suppliers. Right. So they're okay. scrambling now, yeah. opening the operations center, announcing a general. This is weeks after provinces did the same thing just at a, at a provincial level. So we're pushing for better. We're pushing for right. smarter. I hate seeing a government that is always months behind where they should be in the middle of a pandemic. Last question for you. This should be an issue that's free of partisan bickering, in my opinion. I mean, we're talking about people's lives here. We're talking about people looking for some sort of hope to get us beyond this pandemic, and there should be total transparency on it. I'm, I'm sure you would agree with that. Do you think the government should just release these contracts? I mean, if they have to, if they have to sever some parts of the contract for private corporate reasons or whatever, I mean, fine. But they should release these contracts, don't you think? Absolutely. We yeah. actually uh, put this forward months ago and said any proprietary commercial information right. can be edited out. But Canadians deserve transparency so that the provinces can plan. When the provinces are saying they aren't getting the numbers they were originally planning for for December and January, that should concern Canadians when even the provincial premiers can't get a straight answer out of yeah. Mr. Trudeau and Minister Haiju. And as I said, they, you know, they've been late at every step. We've worked with them when we could. We've approved major benefit expenditures with minimal debate. I've offered to even sit in a joint cabinet meeting to get things better, to use my military and business experience to help the overall effort. There's never a willingness to work with us. And as I said, we're, we're a step behind every time. Canadians deserve better. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. This Tuesday, December 1st, is CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day. We may not be gathering in person this year, but we'll still be raising money all day on CKNW, bringing you inspiring stories from the BC Kids supported by your donations. Make a difference by making a pledge. Details at cknwkidsfund.com. CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day is this Tuesday, December 1st. Do not miss it. Okay, let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now and its impact on the restaurant business. So many restaurants are struggling. A lot of them have gone under, but you know who's really thriving during the pandemic? It's those third-party delivery apps, DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats. This has been a windfall from them. Lots of people staying home. Uh, ordering in instead. These are super popular apps for sure. My family uses them. I DoorDash is probably the most popular one. I've been using that one on occasion, but I got to tell you, it can be expensive, man. Like you take a look at the fees that they charge for these apps. It's unbelievable. You I mean you're talking like a 30% markup on these fees. So I'm just taking a look at the DoorDash 
a website right now with a breakdown of the fees. The total cost on your order includes the price of the menu items and the tax, of course, tax there, optional tip for the driver. Who is not going to tip the driver? Of course, you're going to do that. The delivery fee, the service fee, it just goes on and on. Now, restaurants have been complaining bitterly about these fees, up to 30% of these fees. Digging into the bottom line profits of restaurants, some of them now forced to raise their prices to compensate for these exorbitant fees charged by these apps, even though the companies are pleading with the restaurants, do not raise your prices. Yeah, right. After you're gouging them for 30% fee, of course, they're going to raise their prices. So these are super expensive fees. Look what's going on in other jurisdictions. Ontario uh, just announcing that they will move to cap these fees at 15%. In Ontario, a lot of restaurants are shut down under a medical health order, so restaurants struggling even more and relying on these apps. All right, what's happening here in British Columbia? Well, during the recent election, uh, the NDP, which are won a second major won a new majority government here under John Horgan, they promised to reduce these fees for dine-in apps for uh, delivery apps. Are they going to keep their promise? The Liberals promised the same thing. Let's check in with Greg Kylo now, the Liberal MLA for ShoeSwap. Hey, Greg. Hey, how you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you tell me, uh, what did the Liberals promise on this uh, this issue in the last election? Yeah, the commitment was that uh, we would actually support the restaurant industry. Uh, the initial focus was to try and encourage these app companies to actually look at reducing their fees. Uh, but should they not be willing to do that, uh, we would bring in, or it was our plan to bring in, a cap on those fees, reducing them to the 30% uh, down to 15%. Right, As you right. know, if you order online uh, meal services, uh, you know, on a $100 order, $30 is what these uh, companies have been taking as far as a, as a commission uh, for just uh, facilitating the actual order for the restaurant companies, and it's just way too high. Uh, as we all know, many restaurants, uh, they run on 35 to 40% gross margin, and if 30% of it's going straight to the app company, there's not a lot left uh, for the individual restaurant. Okay, this was a, an issue where both of the, the two major parties were largely in agreement on it. The NDP promised to reduce the fees for these delivery apps as well, cap it at 15%. We just got a new cabinet just sworn in yesterday. Uh, are you confident that the new government here will keep their promise on this, and are you encouraging them to cap these fees? Yeah, no, absolutely. We need to provide the supports for these restaurants. Uh, they provide yeah. uh, employment for many individuals, you know, uh, all across the province, and they're really struggling. They need the lifeline. Um, you know, my only question would be is why have they waited so long? Uh, the NDP were in government uh, right through the pandemic, and it's just odd that they would hold off to make this as an election platform commitment when the concern has been out there uh, going back since last March. Okay, we see Ontario making a move on this now. Are, are, this, is this an idea that seems to be catching on in other jurisdictions as well? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that uh, Washington State has just recently, uh, actually back in the spring, actually put forward a program very similar to actually cap the fees at 15% for a six-month period. And uh, yeah, I would just like to see government get on with it. Uh, I'm not sure why they've been uh, delaying and holding off until an election uh, before they actually do what the business community really needs right now. Okay, speaking of Liberal MLA, Greg Kylo, about the promise to cap fees for very popular home food delivery apps. 
what are you hearing from the restaurant sector here? At least they're at least they're still open. I mean, restaurants are still allowed to have in-person dining here in British Columbia. We're seeing in Ontario how a lot of restaurants have been shut down, which is a brutal blow for restaurants trying to survive here. At least we're still open here in British Columbia. What are you hearing from the restaurant sector these days as they try to survive here? Yeah, well, the most recent health orders and restrictions have actually caused a lot of cancellations. There was many companies that were uh, dealing with Christmas parties uh, in very small numbers, you know, looking at booking uh, uh, staff uh, to have the ability of meeting in smaller groups, you know, four to six people. And uh, I'm hearing that those are all being canceled. People are obviously taking heed the advice of, uh, of our chief medical officer. So a lot of cancellations. Uh, some of the businesses that have not been participating in uh, some of these apps, uh, because of the exorbitant fees, uh, they're indicating that uh, should the fees get capped, that they would actually start utilizing uh, some of these services to help with uh, obviously reducing their overall costs. Right. We see some of these apps, these home delivery apps, which have got, gotten more and more popular, especially during the pandemic. They're not happy with this movement by governments to cap their fees. So we got the CEO of Skip the Dishes saying like, well, we're already offering rebates to restaurants in areas that are badly affected uh, by COVID-19. Uh, other companies, Uber Eats, has said that they are waiving activation fees for restaurants as a way to kind of help restaurants through through this struggle. I mean, you know, these companies are, are charging massive fees. You've got to have, you got to bring the hammer down to government on these companies, don't you? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a need, uh, especially during the pandemic, you know, this is unprecedented times that we're dealing with. And so I think in unprecedented times takes unprecedented measures. Uh, you know, the companies that are charging these fees of upwards of 30%, uh, it's just, it's too high. Uh, when you have a look, as I mentioned, where a lot of the restaurants are only running on a 35 to 40% gross margin, Right, 30% is just going to a commission uh, to these companies. There's not a lot left. No. And the businesses are actually providing the employment largely uh, with their workers and, and their cooking staff. Those are the ones that need to have the support right now. Okay, yeah. I mean, a 30% fee largely wipes out the profit margin for a lot of these restaurants. So they're really struggling with it. And that's why you see some restaurants actually raising some of their menu prices for takeout orders that use these apps. And a lot of the apps are encouraging them don't do that. They're fearing, I guess, they're going to cut into their own business. But I mean, what are they going to do? You know, these restaurants have got to survive somehow. And uh, these these fees, I don't know, they seem usurious to me. So when would you, yeah. when do you want to see the government move on this? Uh, as soon as possible. Uh, you know, I, the, the question is, why have they waited this long? Uh, they were in government uh, right through the pandemic. And I think that this could have been acted on many months ago. And Washington State, as I mentioned, uh, brought this in back in the spring. So I'm not sure why uh, the NDP chose to wait and make this an election promise. But I certainly hope they move forward on it sooner than later. The other thing that's happening is for a lot of the larger chain restaurants, they get a significant discount. They can negotiate uh, wow. much lower commission fees. It's the small mom and pop shops. They're the ones that are getting hammered the full 30%. And so wow. I think that there's a way of leveling the playing field so that, uh, you know, the smaller mom and pop restaurants that uh, provide, you know, great meal services in our own communities, they should be also entitled yeah. to a, a discounted rate. Hmm, interesting. Okay, Greg, thank you for coming on today. Mike. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the program. Let's keep talking about the COVID-19 pandemic now. And like we were saying earlier on the show, lots of businesses in other parts of the country have been shut down. There's been some pretty aggressive lockdowns in some provinces. Now, in British Columbia, most businesses allowed to operate with some very prominent exemptions. Now, some of the rules are on some of these businesses are vague to be kind. Let's talk about dance and fitness studios across the Lower Mainland now. They were shut down, then they're opened again, shut down, open, shut down. Got to kind of follow the bouncing ball on this thing. Imagine trying to run a business like that. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Tammy Morris. She is the owner of Tantra Fitness Studios, four locations in Metro. Very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hiya, Tammy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me a little bit about Tantra Fitness. Uh, you got, I think, it's four locations, right? We do. We have one in Richmond, one in Burnaby, and two in Vancouver. Okay, congratulations on that. That's very cool business you've got there. Um, let's talk about how these restrictions have affected you. Let's go back to the when the, this whole nightmare first started back in March. Were you, shut, were you guys shut down then? We were. Uh, we yeah. were. At least it was really cut and dry back then, I have right. to say. You know, everybody was shut down. It was a kind of a, even across the board, um, and it was super clear. So I have no issue with what we had to do at that time. Yeah. How long were you shut down then in the spring? We were shut down for three months. Wow. Okay, three months. Yeah. And then you were allowed to reopen again with your protocols in place. And then we've got the second wave and some of the restrictions that were put in place into Metro Vancouver. And, and this is where it gets confusing for you guys, right? So can you tell me what happened here with this sort of sh- uh, closed and opened and closed again? Yeah, I mean, it's confusing even trying to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, prior, prior to November 7th, Dr. Bonnie Henry had announced that she wasn't planning any more closures, and, um, but that indoor physical activity, um, specifically fitness, uh, which was dangerous, which was damaging, you know, on its own. But then, of course, November 7th came our provincial health orders, where she did say that some facilities were doing a great job. Yet, she painted everyone with the same brush and shut everyone down, of course, with the hope that, um, you know, given an updated COVID safety plan um, approved by the local medical health officer, we could open possibly within days. So obviously this was, you know, this was a surprise. We knew the numbers were going up, but I think the biggest surprise was that, you know, not everybody was closed. We weren't doing another shutdown for everyone. It was, it was targeted. So, you know, and I didn't know really that there was much data or any um, statistics to kind of support this decision, but, you know, I want to do whatever I need to do. So of course I called every medical health officer that I could find and when I finally spoke to, to someone, I was, quote, I was told, and I quote, we found out the same time you did, so we have no idea what's going on. And that, that's what okay. I was told by the medical health officer. So, you know, they just took my information and said they'd get back to me when they received direction. Right. Okay. So now on November 7th, you were, your company is a, is a dance studio. Is that how it's qualified? A dance studio. Correct. Right. Okay. So November 7th, you're shut down. And then I understand that that order was rescinded on November 19th and the new shutdown was for high-intensity interval training 
spin classes, and hot yoga were required to shut down. And then you got the green light to reopen again at that point? We did. So I contacted, you know, environmental health, uh, you know, which I had been harassing (laughs) because we wanted to open. And they really just redirected me to the government website that said specifically that, you know, that the exact wording was these activities can stay open. And one of those activities listed was dance studios. Right. So So, it said dance studios were allowed to open up again with, with, uh, while updated guidance is being developed. So you opened your doors again at that point, right? We did, but on November 20th, we received an email from Fraser Health actually saying that they believe the PHO was inaccurate based on the intent and that our activities were to remain suspended. So not only was there kind of, you know, lack of communication for us, with us, but also between the government bodies themselves. And I think those are the things that were really frustrating because now here I'm in a situation where okay, well, it seems like I can open three locations, but this location I have to keep close because this health authority is giving me different information than this health authority. Yikes. So, okay. All right. So when you reopened on Monday again, uh, can you tell me about some of the policies you put in place there to keep people safe in your, your fitness studio, your dance studio? Yeah, well, Mike, this is the frustrating thing because these, aren't, these were not new policies for us. These yeah. policies we had put in place June 1st because... This is personal for me. I mean, we're a small business. I work in the business. I teach. I teach. I I work the front desk. You know, and this is the thing with small businesses is that we can really control our environment much easier than than the big box stores and a lot of other places. We know exactly who's coming in our doors. We've got a smaller, you know, square footage. We we have a limited occupancy. So so right when we reopen in June, we we cut our class capacities in half. Any kind of... Um, higher impact classes that we had. So anything was a little bit more cardio based. We moved it to online. We got plexiglass. We had a mandatory mask um, policy since we opened June 1st. I mean, we, we got on this early. You know, I, I wanted to do everything I can. As a small business, we don't want COVID in our facility. It's, a, it's, a, it's bad for business. So, yeah. You know, I, I'm doing everything I can to not have it. We've got infrared um, thermometers. We have to, you know, people have to get their temperature taken. We have lots of time between classes so that we can control traffic. I mean, I can go on and on. Our policies are really, really strict. And we have zero tolerance for anyone that, that won't, you know, adhere to them. You know, June 1st, we had lots of people that were like, we don't want to wear a mask when we're, when we're in the studio. And so... I had to, you know, cancel people's contracts and just let them go. So, yeah. I mean, we yeah. have really stuck to these policies right from day one. So it's frustrating that no one has ever come to visit us. We've never had an inspection. We've never had any contact. We've never had an exposure. Um, you know, really nothing. Just just to kind of paint us all with the same brush and shut us down has, has been very frustrating. Okay, speaking to Tammy Morris, she is the owner of Tantra Fitness, their dance studio. She has four locations in Metro Vancouver. So, what, so Tammy, what is your situation now? Are you shut down again now? We're shut down again, yeah. yeah we opened yeah. for the one day, and then, of course, I woke up on the 24th, the day after we opened, you know, to find out through social media that we had to close again. You know, it, and, and it, I guess the wording was just quietly changed. There was no mention during the the broadcast on the 23rd with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix that, that there was any extension of the PHO for, for fitness and dance. So, 
you would have kind of found out that way. And now, you know, we're eight months into a pandemic and we're still waiting for guidelines to reopen. Right. You know, that's very frustrating. And don't get me wrong. I understand this is overwhelming for everyone involved. And I know Dr. Bonnie Henry is obviously feeling the weight of the world on her shoulders. But, you know, this this is a huge impact. Her words have such a huge impact on small businesses, on me, my family. I mean, the 70 people I employ, which many are independent contractors. So, yes, there's there's government subsidies and stuff to help, but it's not going to help my independent contractors and and. In a city where lots of people live paycheck to paycheck, this is really, you know, playing with people's lives. It's, it's you know, very, like I Are said, you, very impactful. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can understand your frustration, especially when it's kind of, you're, you can open, close, open, close, open, close, and it, the, the wording of the, of the order seems to change almost on a daily basis, and obviously that's got to be frustrating. Uh, are, are you in danger, is your, your business in danger of shutting down permanently? Um, I think that, you know, at this point, like I said, we have four locations. We've been in business for 16 years. Um, you know, we continue to, to pivot and adapt and do what we need to do. And I think that we'll be okay because we've been in business for so long, um, that we're going to get through it. Um, but there's a ton of businesses, um, that aren't, there's a lot of people that I know personally that have already had to shut down their businesses. So I right. feel grateful and fortunate at this point to not have to be one of those and, and knock on wood that right. we can get through however long this lasts again. Right. I certainly hope that remains the case for you. Just last question for you, Tammy. So what would you like to see happen now? I mean, you obvi- I guess you want to reopen again. Are you looking for the government for some more guidelines and, and, a, and a green light to open your business again? Or are you expecting now to be shut down for quite a while? Well, like I said, we're waiting for these guidelines um, to come out. And so yeah. you know, all I'm asking at this point in time is, you know, I'm not pushing to open my business necessarily. I'm looking for um, an even playing field here. You know, do, do you have our numbers gone down since we've been closed? I don't think so. You know, what about the what about the Granville Street Party on Halloween? What about the anti-mask protests? You know, I feel like we need to focus on the individual rule breakers. You know, I, yeah, I just yeah. think it's not fair. If everyone shut down, like like the first lockdown, then I, I'll take it. You know, I'll accept it. But I just, I, it's hard to accept this um you know we're again we've been told we're waiting for these guidelines to come out right. but with the information changing all of the time it's really hard to even you know have any confidence in in that so you know it's tough you know it's, for me it's it's equating it to this you know it's like there's a guy in a silver honda he passes me on the left side speeding in a school zone you know and the next day everyone with a silver honda loses their license you know how is that fair <laughs> yeah, so you know, that's where I'm at right now. It's just a little bit of frustration. And again, all I'm asking is just for some clear and concise direction and some guidance. Tammy, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. All right, time to talk about the Vote 16 BC campaign. This is the campaign to lower the voting age in British Columbia to age 16. Yesterday, they got the official support of the BC Federation of Labor. Lots of other unions have jumped on board this campaign as well. Is this movement gaining momentum now to lower the voting age in British Columbia to age 16? Let's check in with my guest now, Diego Christensen Barker, a team leader with the Vote 16 BC campaign. Diego, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Okay, Diego, I'm not sure what I what I think of this uh, this idea, but I'm I'm prepared to keep an open mind 
and listen to you make your pitch. So you tell me why the voting age should be 16. It's 18 right now, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, lower, so, it to, lower it to 16. Why? Yeah, so we have some key reasons. Uh, one thing uh, is that lowering voting age could potentially increase uh, voter turnout over time. Um, so researchers in Austria found that uh, the 16 and 17-year-olds voted more than the 18 21-year-olds. Uh, and just using research from Yale and Dukes uh, that says that voting is a habit, we can sort of infer that that should uh, increase the voting age in the future. Okay, young, just, young people vote pretty pretty low turnout by young people now, typically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, if you, vote, if you let even younger people vote, how would that increase the voting age? At least, like, if you're even younger, they're more likely to turn out and vote? Yeah, they are, because okay. when you're 16, 17, you're in a much uh, stabler environment, meaning you have a routine. You go to school, you go to work, um, but you're at home. Uh, and voting can, can be more of a priority. But when you're 18, 21, you're traveling, you're, you're at university, you have other priorities on your mind. Uh, and this was hmm. uh, researched by uh, yeah, Aus- researchers in Austria. Okay. All right. Okay, give me another one. So then uh, another one is that you can marry your MP, or MLA, but you can't vote for them. Uh, <laughs> also, at sixteen, you can give your you can give consent to anyone uh, unless they're in a position of power. Uh, and then there's all the youth who work and pay taxes. Uh, so there yeah. now there isn't a huge population of youth that pay taxes, but the, those who do have are paying taxes without any representation. Right. Now, I've heard that argument before that there's lots of stuff that you can do at age 16 right now. You can get married, you can drive a car, right? get a driver's license, but you can't, you can't vote. But l- let me throw this one at you. Are people who are 16 years old, you sound like a young guy. How old are you right now? I'm 16, actually. You're 16. Okay. I think that's very yeah. cool you're engaged in this. Um, when you're 16 years old, I mean, you're obviously a super, you're a smart young guy. Most 16-year-olds, though, are they engaged enough to understand what's going on in politics? I mean, does the average 16-year-old even understand how how government functions and operates? I mean, I'm sure you you do, but what about your peers, typically? Yeah, totally. That's a very common argument against vote 16. Um, and, And one thing that addresses that is that the American Psychology Association did a research um, that found that from ages 11 to 16, the, ma- the cognitive maturity of a youth increases. Uh, and so that's a maturity to make a decision, uh, an educated decision. And then at 16, it shows no improvement. But then to address more your point about political engagement, um, that, that, is, that is definitely an issue. But with lowering the voting age, it's, it's very likely that more political education will come into play in schools. Okay. Do you think if you lowered the voting age to 16, I mean, you talked about the potential to increase voter participation, and I think that's a good, a good priority to have. I mean, we just went through a provincial election here where the voting, the voter turnout was woefully low. Like it was really, it was really bad. One of the lowest ever. Um, if you lowered it to age 16, I don't know. Do you think maybe people would get into the groove of voting a little earlier? Like if you get people engaged at a young, get people engaged politically at a younger age, maybe they're more likely to keep voting through their life? Is that possible? Yeah, that and, and that's exactly what we've, we've found through, through our research, is that um, it's like that slight increase that 
the 16, 17 age group that would have over the 18, 21 age group over time in, combined with more voter education and um, also just voting being a habit should increase um, the overall voter turnout and particularly in the younger age group. Okay. Do you think an average 16-year-old is mature enough to handle this this, this responsibility? Like, like I said, you're 16 years old, but you're, you sound like a super smart young guy. So, you know, I, I'm certain that you're mature enough to vote responsibly. But for a typical 16-year-old, I mean, isn't the teenage, like the teenage brain, isn't it like literally still developing at age 16? It is, yes, that's true, it's still developing, but it's developing after, after age 16, it's developing um, almost entirely in the emotional maturity side. Uh, the cognitive maturity, so making an educated decision, so that could also be deciding whether you're going to get an abortion or not, uh, at 16 is fully developed. Okay, what is, uh, do any other jurisdictions have voting age 16? Yeah, are, like you're referring internationally? Yeah, like anywhere. Yeah, so Austria uh, has had it since 2007, um, and many uh, states in uh, Germany, uh, 10 out of the 16 states they have there, uh, have their voting age at 16. And one really interesting one is South Africa, which I believe, yeah, they, they lowered the voting age 16 before the turn of the, the 20th century um, in Brazil in 1988. Okay, it's a very interesting campaign. Are you getting any support? It's interesting you're getting labor support, like a lot of union support, which is intriguing to me. What about the political parties, like the people who would actually make the decisions on this? So, so right now we've got an NDP majority government in power. I, I know that I believe the BC Green Party was on the record as supporting lowering the voting age to 16, correct? Yeah. Yeah, what about the other parties? The other parties... Um the liberals, the uh, especially just because right now they're such an, in in a, such a, uh, a divided state, um, yeah. we we haven't really approached them, um, and as well, as well as the conservatives, partly because um, we're we're not too confident that this would be something they can support, and as well as just they just don't have as strong of a presence here in BC. Yeah, I mean, do you think that? You know, conservative parties or parties that are on the conservative right on the political spectrum would be less likely to support lowering the voting age because w- would you would you think would you say that younger people are more likely to vote like for a left wing party? They're more likely to vote NDP, more likely to vote Green, maybe than voting for a right wing party. You know, I I think that there is that kind of sense um, because I think a lot of the the like the young political voices uh, are on sort of the left um, left right. side. But, uh, you know, I've talked to him, I've talked to many people, especially in, I'm here in Camp River um, on the island uh, that would vote conservatives. Uh, and uh, also I think I'm pretty sure from the uh, youth vote uh, that, that, that they do at the schools yeah. Um, that it was pretty pretty reflective of what most of of the uh, like the Canadian election. Okay, very interesting, Diego. Thanks for coming on to talk about the campaign today, and good for you for getting involved at a at a young age. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Mike.
Welcome back to Vote 16 BC campaign. It aims to reduce the voting age in British Columbia from 18 to 16. Let's take your calls on it now. Tim and Burnaby. Hi, Tim. Hi there. Hi. Um, I think 16-year-olds have the intelligence to make a good decision. I just don't think they have the life experience to make the educated vote. Yeah. Uh, they don't have the... Uh, a job, they don't have a mortgage, they don't have a car payment, they don't have to pay the hydro bills, they don't have kids, and the ramifications of making a vote is huge on how the economy will function, how much taxes you pay, and all sorts of different parts of you know what we look at. Okay, thank you. thanks for that. we got lots of calls here. Let's see how other people feel about it. Put Tim down as a keep the voting age at 18. Let's go to Tammy in New West. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Mike. Uh, I support this because there's two reasons, really. One is I'm not that concerned about the immaturity level of 16-year-olds because I think there's a certain number of adults who aren't all that mature and and informed about voting either. So, you know, there's going to be a percentage in each group that that's going to be an issue for. But I do think that if it's lowered, it'll be kind of a novelty from the kids' point of view that they get to vote. Hopefully the schools will you know, talk about it in the social studies class yeah, and yeah. they'll vote once and then it'll be something they're comfortable doing and hopefully they'll keep voting. Yeah, good one, Tammy. Thank you for that. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Pat in Richmond. Hi, Pat. Hi. Hi uh, I am opposed to lowering the voting age. Uh, I have discussed this with my great-granddaughter, uh, she was 16 at the time, and she was opposed to it. She said that they're not mature enough at 16. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, the arguments for sure, that when you're 16 years old, you're not mature enough, you don't have the life experience. Depends on the kid, though, right? You know, like some kids, I think, are, are very mature. Like the, the guy we had on the show, I thought was a very mature kid, for sure, and I, I could certainly trust him to... to uh, to make a call let's go to is it brian we going to brian next brian in richmond or brian in maple ridge hey 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 brian How's it going? yeah good hey, go ahead I, look i just think this is a nutty idea from the left because the kids are all altruistic and idealistic when you're young but after you've paid taxes for five or ten years uh you start to vote with your walls a little bit more than your heart yeah and uh, I don't think these kids really, you know, I would be in favor of raising it to 21 or 25 until you've had a chance. Then you've got some skin in the game. You know what I'm saying? These yeah. kids, let them take a civics course. Get them involved in civics courses and uh, teach them to be good citizens that way. And then when they get the opportunity to vote and they've got some life experience, have at it. Okay, Brian, thanks for the call. There is definitely some political division on this. Because you would likely see the B.C. Liberal Party, they would get less youth vote, according to voting patterns. They'd probably be against it. The B.C. Green Party, more likely to get support from young voters. They will be for it. The NDP, kind of in the middle. I would think maybe the NDP might be worried about losing votes to the Green Party if they lowered the voting age. But... I will say it's interesting to see so many of these big unions in British Columbia getting behind this idea, and we know this is a government that is influenced by labor. Brian in Vancouver. Hi, Brian. 
Hey, Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm opposed to it as well. Uh, I'm 30 years old myself. When I was 16, I thought I had the world figured out. I was uh, big uh, on the left wing. I thought all those, all the altruistic causes were great. And that, and then once you get into the real world, you get a uh, paycheck or two. Um, uh, you start to shift over to the right. So I think right. that um, I think that it's just a natural progression. I think it would kind of uh, make things unlevel in terms of the uh, the voter base, and uh, we'd be uh, locked into insane amounts of debt, like we are fed- in, on a federal level and uh, just writing checks that we can't even uh, afford to pay for. So I think you need to uh, live a little and um, see what it's like uh, out in the real world and uh, okay. form your opinions that way instead of just what you get taught in school. Brian, thanks for a good call. We have lots of calls in this one. Let's try to squeeze a few more in. Lisa in Langley. Hi, Lisa. Hi. I am Hi. in complete support of lowering the voting age. I mean, when we're talking about things like climate change, when yeah. we're talking about the economic recovery from the pandemic, that's that's going to affect these kids' lives more than any of us, just because they're going to be around longer. Um, they're saying with the pandemic, people are going to, like, the job market's going to be affected for decades. And, yeah. and these kids should have had a say in the last election. Okay, um, maturity and intelligence, that's not a reason to vote ages. So that's not the benchmark. So, Thank you, Lisa. So. Thanks, Lisa. I'm going to squeeze one more, and you got to go, Chris, though. Chris, you got to go fast. Chris and Langley, go quick. Uh, basically, 16 is an age. It's vulnerable. It can be triggered by emotion, which can make decisions. You know, 16 to 18, you can take in a consensus. But, I mean, like, let's educate them up okay. to an 18 of age. To okay, vote. thanks for the, thanks a lot for all the great calls on that. We got a split opinion on that one, and we didn't get to all the calls. Lots of people wanted to have their say, but we're up against the clock.